Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit, and today I am speaking at very troubling times, I would say. Um, and and the agenda, the topic of sustainability, and the topic of the society that we're trying to build is probably more uh, relevant than ever. Uh, we are in the beginning of March, 2021. And the uh, war in Ukraine is ongoing um, and it's unfolding. And my guest today, she's been working there. She's been working, I think, pretty much everywhere, right? <laughs> you are really one, one of the most experienced people that I've probably had on the podcast. And we've, I've come across you through the Legacy 17 network uh, that you are running, have started, uh, that you have started. Um, which is concerned around the sustainable development goals and sustainability in a lot of different aspects. And I've been fascinated by the topics, the breadth of topics that um, you have experienced within and that I have you know, been able to, to get a glimpse of uh, in, in uh, being part of the network. And I'm really, really happy to be having this conversation. Uh, so Marilyn Melman, welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Even in these troubled times, I should perhaps point out that it's 1922 at the moment. Uh, 2022 at the moment, not 2021. 2022, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, right. The years pass so fast. Yeah. That's nice. Thank you. Um, I'm thinking just to start us off, um, I want to, to start you, kind of do what I always tend to do. And rather than me introducing you, I will... Uh, allow you to do so in the way that you see fit by the existential or the very simple question of um, who are you, Marilyn Melman? <laughs> well, my, my existential answer to that is that I am a fragment of the universe. My more mundane answer to that <laughs> is that I'm a, a multicultural a uh, psychologist and activist, born in the United Kingdom, living in Sweden since many years. I've been living in Sweden much longer than most Swedes. Uh, I moved here in uh, 1967. Uh, but since then, as you say, I've worked all over the world. And the two countries where I've probably worked the most over the years uh, are Ukraine and Vietnam. And the third is probably Russia. So I'm really aware of the, at the kind of visceral level of what's going on at the moment and very engaged in it, in this conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And my focus has been for many years now on sustainable development, sustainable lifestyle, change, transformation, empowerment. In fact, we've just begun using another word in addition to empowerment, uh, to transformation, and that is alchemy, so alchemical processes. So I'm an alchemist, maybe. <laughs> that's, that's fun. Mm -hmm. um, in 67, have you always, has this always been your path? You, you mentioned you're an activist. Is that something that has always been pulling you? And, or how did you get into the topic or area of sustainable development? I think... It sounds a bit silly, but when I was something like 11 years old, I was on a, we were on a family trip, my parents and my brother and me, and we were on a boat off the coast of England. And my father and I were hanging over the railing, looking down at the water. And suddenly from below us, where the, the, the galley, the kitchen was, out shot a whole barrel load of potato peelings and, yeah, kitchen waste, food waste. And I said to my father, oh, that's terrible. They're putting all that into the sea, you know, the sea where we go bathing and stuff. And my father said, oh, don't worry. The sea's so big, it will take care of it. And that was the first time in my life that I looked at my father and thought, maybe he doesn't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really unsure. I really felt, no, no, there's something wrong with this. This doesn't work. <laughs> 
So maybe that was the start of my career as an activist. I'm not sure. <laughs> so that was in 1950, about. Hmm. When I was a student, there was a lot of concern about nuclear power and nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament. And quite a lot of my fellow students were convinced that they would never marry or have children. In particular, they would never have children because they couldn't bring children into a world with, where there were nuclear weapons. Um, I didn't subscribe to that view, but I felt vaguely guilty that I wasn't as, <laughs> as conscious as they were. <laughs> I, I understood the arguments and I still felt, no, I'm not sure. So the way to activism is probably paved with moments of being not sure, not sure of whether your father actually knows everything, not sure of whether you're active, actually conscious or aware enough. This uncertainty is probably a part of being an activist somewhere. That's, that's, inter that's an interesting perspective because I've never called myself an activist. And, and one of the reasons why I haven't is because I felt like the activists that I've come across have been very sure. There hasn't been very much um, room for uncertainty. There's been a lot of certainty and a lot of kind of pushing in, in a particular direction and, and also like an, something that I've, like there's a term for this, the, the action bias uh, that I didn't know what it was, but, but just this idea that it's better to do something and a lot of the times I've kind of felt like, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think it's necessarily better to do something. You know, what if we would just stop? So it's interesting that you bring that out um, as a perspective. And the other thing that I'm, I got curious about was that what you're describing is, I mean, I'm, I'm significantly younger than you are. And, and we are um, living in what people are calling or referring to as liminal times. Uh, and... I mean, I see the same arguments uh, that you were just saying re regarding nuclear power. I mean, that is currently, that's the reasoning there is the environmental um, disaster or collapse or, um, you know, and anywhere on that, on that spectra that we are in the front in, in fa facing, if you will. And it's interesting, it's just interesting to have that perspective with one, with, with me <laughs> as we're going into it, that, that these topics have been alive for longer, although the reason for the worry might have been different. And how, how do you see that, that journey or, or that development? If, you know, what, what has sustainable development been during your activism? Yeah, I think what we saw was a, a steady progression uh, from the 1950s through, so that the concerns uh, the issues, the problems, have become increasingly global. So from being, you know, air pollution in London, when I grew up, we still had smog in London. Uh, and this was a huge issue, obviously. Fortunately, it no longer is. But all the way through to climate change, um, Arctic and Antarctic meltdowns and so on. So we've seen a constant expansion of the area. There's nowhere to go. And obviously people sometimes say there is no planet B. Previously, that you could have gone somewhere else. You know, you, you could have gone to another country. You could have left London and gone somewhere else. You could have left, although I know some people who went to some very remote islands because they were afraid of nuclear war. Uh, and the islands they chose were the Falkland Islands, <laughs> which then became the subject of <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's personal war with Argentina. <laughs> But, but in principle, there was always somewhere else you could go, but there isn't anymore, uh, despite what people like Elon Musk and others would have, like going to Mars is completely, or the moon even, completely impractical. It takes like, I forget how many, but like 15,000 people on planet Earth to maintain one person on, on the moon. You know, so uh, it's not, a, not an option either. Um, so not now. It might be later, who knows, but... So we, we have come to the, the end of that trajectory. There is nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run to. At the same time, it becomes clearer and clearer that the solutions 
are of necessity local. There is no one size fits all. There is no general panacea to say, you know, well, if you if you do this in your city or your community or your country or even your neighborhood, everything will be fine. Because that doesn't work. There is everything has to be tailored to the circumstances in time and space, and especially in terms of people, the psychological space and the sociological space. And that's something that we've been watching, mapping a lot. We've been working, friends, colleagues, partners, and I over, well, since really since 1989, more, more systematically with sustainable lifestyle. And what we see is an exaggerated belief in practical or technical or scientific and or administrative legislative solutions to the exclusion of the people concerned. So over and over, we've seen really ambitious projects in, for example, a municipality or somewhere else, really ambitious. And they set off and they, they do this. They have, the, they have the solution and they install it. And then like a year later or two years later, they sit up and say, but wait a minute, we're not getting the results. People aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They aren't sorting their garbage. They aren't saving energy. They aren't saving, they aren't, people are doing it all wrong. And this, that's what led us actually to start Legacy 17, because we've been doing all this great work for nearly 30 years and actually influencing people in their lifestyles uh, and Really, and not only we, I mean, there are lots of organizations out there doing really great stuff. And yet the world was getting consistently less and less sustainable. And so we said, well, you know, it's not enough. <laughs> what we're doing is good, but as my math teacher always said about my math proofs, necessary but not sufficient. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we we need to start with where people are and to help them to be somewhere more productive. And then the solutions will be easy. The technical, the scientific, the legislative solutions, will f they fall out. Of course, it's good to have them. It's good to have a whole portfolio of stuff that's possible. But unless, it, there needs to be a groundswell that wants this and that uh, designs it, consciously designs it, and then it works. Now, the difference is huge, but we're not there yet. There are wonderful people working with this. I mean, it's not only Legacy 17, many other people and groups that we're in touch with also, and probably many that we're not in touch with. And, and that sounds like what you brought in uh, in the introduction, so to say, this, this uh, theme of empowerment, that it is around em empowering people to actually take responsibility rather than sort of leaning back into um, someone else taking care of you or giving up your power. Uh, you know, dis, I don't know if dispowerment is the right. But, disempowerment. But yes. uh, something like that. Yeah. Disempowerment, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it leads us back to the, the, the sad topic of Ukraine and Russia at the moment, <clears throat> where you can see very clearly that in Ukraine there is horizontal communication. People are talking to each other they are organizing themselves from the bottom up, but with the encouragement of the president who is in there with them and members of parliament who are staying there. They're not shipping out, going somewhere else. And the contrast with Russia, where all of the communication is vertical and where clearly the top has no idea what's going on at the bottom. And it's the only way that the this tiny country, Ukraine, was able to halt the invasion of the Russian army with 160,000 soldiers, or however many it was, and heavy armaments and so on and so on. And it's, it's such a, I mean, the whole, tra the whole situation is very, very tragic. And as, as you say, um, I've worked there a lot and have many friends there, but, but if we can just step back from the tragedy for a moment, it's an amazing illustration of the power of horizontal communication and of participation. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so let's just hope that it continues to prevail. Yeah, I mean, there, there's that. Um, let's say it's an invitation to practice that radical hope, if you will, that very active hope of doing what you can, and then also trusting that that um, 
yeah, let's just hope. Um, and to ask, the, ask just to, to add that, what, what we need to do as, if you like, spectators to this tragedy is not to say, oh, I could do this, I could do that, but to ask them, what do you need? Because that's so, um, that's the classic of the participatory approach. And maybe they'll come up with something. At the moment, my friends seem to need to know that there's somebody out there who cares. Mm. And that's good. That, that I can do. I mean, that's, that's also very interesting in, in the, if we'll keep, we'll stick to the, because it's so salient to us. I mean, this particular ex example, if you will. But that, that's another, I mean, I have, my sister has been working within the U UN for, for quite some time with, with female reproductive health. And um, a lot of what she's saying as well is this idea of the co-created, uh, I mean, this idea of actually um, not coming in and telling people um, what is what is right and what they should be wanting. Um, also not sort of solving problems somewhere else, but rather fully have that openness and that courage to ask and, and to also have the courage to do the little things, <laughs> the smallest things might have, uh, you know, an outsized effect. Uh, but, you know, who, who are we to know on the outside unless we ask? And is, do you see if we switch back to the topic of sustainable development on that in that vein, is that something, has there been a progression there uh, in, during your career? Is this, this idea of the co-creation, this idea of bringing in the subjects of the, those, the victims of the development, so to say, um, into the discussion? Is that done in a good way? Uh, I think it's, it's advancing um, by fits and starts and in different ways. Um, I have one friend and colleague who who is a professor in, in France who works a lot in Africa. And she is opposed to the very use of the term development because she says it's a, a post-colonial concept of development, meaning um, that uh, these, these poor countries can be uh, enabled to become like us. So that development, the, the, the word development has become tainted, if you like. Uh, I still use it, but I'm, I've become much more aware of the connotations of it. What is happening, we see, for example, now the movement around the inner development goals, so not only the sustainable development goals, the SDGs. The SDGs in themselves, although they are mostly, uh, shall we say, practical or scientific or technical or legislative, uh, they're not only that, but um, they are a landmark because it's the first time since the adoption of the Declaration of Human Rights that the world community has agreed on a set of common goals that I know of. So uh, it's easy to criticize the SDGs. I'll do it happily. <laughs> but, but, but finally, it is a landmark in, in the history of, of global cooperation. So that's good. What we're seeing now is... is um, a project or a movement centered on what is called the inner development goals. In other words, based on the idea that unless we are all on a path of personal transformation, uh, it's going to be very difficult to achieve the external transformation that is necessary. So the alchemy, the alchemy starts inside. Yeah? Um, and this is growing quite rapidly. Um, the last meeting I was at online, there were like 150 people online and from all over the world. So that's one example of the way things that are changing are, are encompassing more the, um, both the individual and the collective psyche, if you like, how we view ourselves, how we view each other, and not only how we view the rest of the world out there, because we are part of that too. So how we integrate ourselves in our own awareness. So I think it's coming. It's coming much too slowly, um, but I can see it advancing here and there, doing what I can, my little bit, what I can. But I think that's interesting what you're bringing in because I've been, I've been part of the Minia Kurt Foundation is very much a, a driver behind the inner development goals. And 
um, I'm very impressed by their work. It's the same thing. Like I could criticize them all day. And at the same time, I mean, the work that they're doing is incredibly important and, and it really has a nice, uh, you know, they're, they're spreading an awareness of these topics in a way that I think probably more people can relate to. And at the same time, I mean, there is this, this whole concept of, of the goal and this whole concept of, I mean, development is one thing. I think progress is one thing. And what I'm thinking about at the moment is, is that the challenge with those words are that they, they, they seem to, they have a directionality. It's almost like we, we're programmed. They're not necessarily directional if you will. But, but the way that we're programmed to see them is always sort of up to the right <laughs> in, the, in whatever matrix that, that we are working with. And, and I'm wondering, like, alchemy is an interesting word because that means more transformation, right? It's more sort of, and transformation itself is also interesting because it's also around, it's not so directional. It's more kind of composting or, or something which is more a, a change uh, or a movement. Um, and so I'm very curious about the concept of sort of omnidirectional progress or omnidirectional um, development? You know, how do we, how do we do, how do we move without having an, an, a set endpoint in mind, kind of coming back to that uncertainty that you were speaking to in the start? Yeah, I think it's very well summarized by the saying that life, life is not a destination, it's a journey. So we're talking about journeys now. One area where the concept of sustainable development falls down is that it envisages an end state, as you say, where we have developed to a point where we are sustainable and we can go on forever doing whatever it is we're doing. Um, neither we nor any other ecosystem is like that. Every ecosystem on the planet is always constantly evolving. And so what we're looking for is not a steady state. It is a stable state. Somebody once said, well, what we really mean by sustainability is stable change. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a set of systemic loops that enable us as a civilization to continue into the indefinite future. The other point where it falls down, the concept of sustainable development, is that it kind of assumes that we can start from where we are now without looking at the history, but we've already created so much damage. So the whole concept of regeneration has come, and there are a lot of projects for regenerative development, um, uh, not necessarily restoring the status quo, but repairing the damage. If you look at something like... Um, uh, food, which is, to my mind, the biggest, single, most important topic in the SDGs is food. It impacts every one of the 17 SDGs. Um, what we have done consistently over the past 50 years, at least, and probably a bit more, is we have, we have impoverished the soil. And uh, we are at the point now where we don't have much soil left. If we keep on eroding and impoverishing it at the same speed, then soon there won't be any land left that we can grow food on. I mean, you know, it's that bad. So we can't talk about sustainable development from where we are now, getting more effective tractors and fertilizers and stuff. We need to go back and say, how do we restore the health of the soil? And everything that can restore the health of the soil is also contributing to reducing CO2 in the atmosphere. Because the soil is, when it's healthy, binds a lot of CO2. So we're talking about history as well as the future. So we're talking about some kind of continuum, which is not a continuum in, in the sense of linear, but it's restoring cycles that can carry us into a viable future. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. And <laughs> so, but to, to kind of say, say something similar to, to give another, another view on that. I mean, it, it is the way that I've been thinking about it is that whenever we solve a problem, and especially if we're really good at looking at where we are, um, there are, let's say, material constraints or, or let's say, quote-unquote, reality <laughs> that, that influences what the solution is that we can offer. Like we can, if we look at the problem and, and we define 
the the issue. I mean, is this this Einstein quote of like an, a problem well understood is, is sort of that is that's very close to the solution. Um, but there is something around the if we are starting to solve solve problems from where we are without having a look at the history, without having a look at the other conditions that might have existed at some point in time, then uh, we are we might be locked into particular solutions. Um, so it's like this whole, um, I mean, I almost think carbon capture technology is, is an interesting perspective there because it's like, we, well, we have carbon in the air. Let's just take the carbon out of the air and pump it into the ground. You know, and, and then if we don't have the sort of created, uh, for one, it could be done through these techniques that you are describing, if we look at food particularly. But, but secondly, more importantly, probably, is that it doesn't matter as long as we keep emitting carbon into the air. So we need to look at the, the sort of the entire system and take a perspective of what are the structural changes that we could create conditions for and then see how they could feed back into the solutions that we have or, or if they can even pull in hand in hand. And the solutions can actually create structures that change the preconditions that we are working with. And so, and hence, we would be in this regenerative loop that you're describing. I don't think I did a very good job at making that simpler. But, but it was a, more words. <laughs> well, I, I think another aspect that you haven't brought in yet, and you did bring in a lot there, is that um, if we are going, if we're not going for the organic solution, which is soil and uh, ocean, by the way, um, growing, cultivating seaweed is almost as good as improving the soil, very close. If you're not going for the organic solution, if you're going for a technical solution, then the machines that you build are going to emit CO2, both when you manufacture them and when you use them. So you're adding to the problem and possibly even adding more to the problem than you're taking out of it. Uh, and certainly using metals, which are also going to need to, to be husbanded, as we can see. So um, most of the technical solutions that are suggested are simply non-viable. They just don't take into account so, so the full spectrum. Uh, so what is a full spectrum? Nobody has a full spectrum because none of us can possibly encompass everything that might happen in, as, a, as an impact of what we're doing. And I'm very much against environmental uh, impact assessments, for example, because they are usually just used as an excuse to do something you wanted to do anyway, uh, to kind of prove by eliminating all the data you don't like to prove that it's actually going to be a positive project. Um, but we cannot possibly anticipate everything that will happen. Uh, we're not gods. You know, we don't have that. And we'll never have that capability. One reason is that we lack a lot of the senses that we would need to be able to do it. We only have five senses. And there's a lot more going on out there than that can be. As we know, I mean, we have Geiger counters to tell us about radioactivity because we don't have anything to sense it with. So there's a lot going on out there that we can't sense, can't measure, don't know about. And so Whatever we do, we're never going to be able to anticipate all of the impacts. This leads, to, leads us to an interesting paradox, actually, when we're talking about alchemy. Because one of the characteristics of alchemy is that once you've turned lead into gold, you can't turn it back into lead again, even if you want to. And yet common sense tells us that we're going to need to be able to reverse some of our decisions because they're going to turn out to be not so good. And that's a paradox that we can never... Solve, we can only live with it. So that, in a sense, that is the paradox of sustainable development. We need to be able to hold that paradox without going schizophrenic. And, and at the same time, like if, if we would, um, <laughs> at the moment I have this, there's a, a guy called Dave, Dave Snowden who has, he's drawn like a, this picture of, of, how we can move in the world and in a complex world you move or in a complicated world you could move in one way in a complex world you would move in another in a chaotic world there's there are other affordances there are other ways that, that would be sort of the, the way to move forward and, and what i'm both in the complex and the chaotic it is much more around experimentation on different levels one is you know and, and small scale experimentation and, and moving and also this uh, this part that you've already brought in which is sort of the hyper local approach that 
that awareness that things that work really, really well in one context might not at all work in another. And so hence, we need to be very careful when we are setting these targets, especially when we are setting numerical targets to certain things, that this is okay, this is not okay. Here is the threshold value for what is okay and what is not okay, because that depends on the ecosystem capacity, if you will, um, and or just the capacity of the system. It doesn't have to be an ecosystem. But I think that's that's interesting in one way, and then it sounds so complex. And at the same time, it's just that 11-year-old on that boat that's looking at, you know, does this feel right? Like, is you know, and there we have, it's like you say, it's not a Geiger counter, but there is a sense, um, there's a sense where for for what is right and what, what shouldn't be right. You know, it's that whole idea of like, if everybody did this, would it work? Um, so it's like, uh, what do you say? Like, bond fornuft, you say in Swedish. Yes, but, uh, common sense, uh, which is not so common, it turns out. <laughs> now, one of the things that we teach in almost all of our workshops is, is something called deep listening, um, which is a technique for listening not only to other people, but also to yourself. In other words, it's a way to access your intuition on a, on a more structured basis than just... Mm. And it actually... Uh, works. And among other things, it enables us to articulate our um, uncertainties, which I think is very important to be able to acknowledge that. When, when you described the people you had come across, uh, the activists you'd come across, who made, made you wary of classing yourself as an activist, <laughs> um, I recognize it so well. It, it's about dogmatism. Yeah? Or in... in uh, we know what's best for you and we're going to give it to you whether you like it or not. <laughs> Which is, um, I think it's, it's anti-sustainable in a sense. You know, it's the opposite of sustainable. And it's one of the reasons that in, in the different organizations that I've worked in over the years, I've found it less interesting to work with environmental NGOs than with, for example, um, social NGOs, because the environmental, uh, environmentalists, not all, but many, tend to be very dogmatic. This is the way things are, and this is the way it should be, and go do it, you know, kind of. And that, that's a problem. It's also a problem for the people involved, the activists, who tend to go into burnout, because it's a very difficult position to be in when you see that the world is not doing what you know it should be doing. I don't know what the world should be doing. But do you think that that, that, that problem in the, in the sustainability or like environmental world, like the, the environmental sustainability work, is that due to a, a technological sort of starting point? Is, is it because we have limited the solution space in some way and then we, we convince ourselves that this is the final solution to all of the problems? Like our technology has to solve all of it? Or is it something else? I think... The, the big difference is between um, a, problem, a problem focus and a solution focus. And they are actually problem focused. So um, if you go to somebody and say, the problem is, and they all have a problem, <laughs> the problem is, um, and therefore the solution must be so-and-so. You don't get many people on board unless they happen to agree with you that the problem is, is, is that particular one. But if you go with a possibility, an opportunity focus, saying, you know, is this really the best we can do? Is there a way we could do it differently? A questioning focus. And an invitation to experiment. That is so important, that word you used earlier. Uh, we found that in working with sustainable lifestyle. We offered our participants, and there were millions over the years across the world, millions of participants, we offered them a choice of different actions they could take. But at the same time, we said, does this seem right for you? Uh, do you have another suggestion? Is there something else you would prefer to do? Um, can you experiment with it? So we never said, for example, sell your car and never travel by car again. We said, how about researching um, the public transport system where you live, if you, if you take your car to work regularly, if you commute regularly, and deciding that every Monday from now on for a month, you will travel to work by public transport, and then evaluating it at the end of the month. 
So invitation to experiment, invitation to experiment is much easier. You know, if you ask somebody to take a stand and say, I'm selling my car, you know, this is it. Who's going to sign up? But to invite people to experiment is, is so much more empowering. And to define, and then they, obviously they need to define their own experiment in one way or another. But, but how come, because I get really curious about the, that social or, or sociological sort of sustainability movement, that they seem to have been, have, have more of that in their DNA, if you will, or in the, in the starting point. How, how come? What is the, what's the difference there? I've never actually thought about that. I, that's a good question. I, I'm tempted to say because the focus is on people. Uh, a famous psychologist who's, I forget which one actually, but a famous psychologist once said, the one thing we know for certain about people is that they will surprise us. Right. So when, you, when your focus is on working with people, you're open to surprises. You have to be, otherwise you're out of business very quickly. But that's it's actually a, a, a train of thought that I've been following actually through the pandemic and this whole um, discussion about the Great Reset and, and that, uh, that communication that was started by the World Economic Forum and this Klaus Schwab, I think he's called. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I've been, it, it didn't sit right with me, um, the, the way that 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 problem, the problem, was framed, so to say. And I started wondering, like, sort of where, where does the loyalty lie? And my feeling was, I mean, this is a feeling, it's my sensed um, thing, is that his loyalty was to the global supply chain. It's sort of the, the, the supply chain requires us to do X, Y, Z. And that kind of snuck into the, but I started, like, and then the second feeling was that the supply chain aren't its people. Like, it's not the same thing. And so there is some sort of tension between are we solving this for the system's sake, the technology's sake, or are we solving this for people? And I'm wondering if that is a similar spillover into, the, into these different areas where we are. Because, you know, environmentalists are, are at least the ones that I've come across, a, a lot of them have this view that they're solving a technical problem. And and then in the social circles, I'm, I'm pretty new, so I don't I don't really have a feeling for what it is. But but the technologists, the engineers, are really focused on technical problems. And so, like you say, then there is a solution to a technical problem. Um, that's really interesting. The the other thing that I was curious around was that when when you spoke about uncertainty and spoke about that curiosity or or that openness to to be able to ask questions, because to do that and to look, uh, you know, to do introspection well as well, if you will, I mean, it takes a certain amount of bravery because you might find things you don't, you won't like and, and you can't blame anybody else for them, especially not if you're introspecting, you know. <laughs> how, how do you think about bravery in this, in the matrix of things that we're... Well, we all need courage in the very fr- Latin sense of the word courage, it's a matter of the heart, yeah? So yes, we all need courage to embark on any kind of transformative journey. Um, and we need trust. Um, if, I, if I go back to what I mentioned earlier about deep listening the, the, that we teach, the originator of this particular approach that we teach was a, a futurist called Warren Ziegler. And he said, when we deep listen to ourselves, we immediately come up against the question, who or what am I listening to or for? Because we are full of inner voices, so many of them. Mm. Um, and he said, what we are listening for is the voice of our spirit. When we deep listen to ourselves, we are listening for the voice of our spirit. And that means something that is deeper than personality. It's not just who we appear to be or who we are on the surface of our lives, but who we are deep down, which fits very well with my own branch of psychology, which is uh, psychosynthesis, where we talk about subpersonalities. And when we talk about deep listening to ourselves and how do you know that what you hear is the voice of your spirit, there are some things about it that are characteristic. One is 
to go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's never judgmental. The voice of the Spirit is never judgmental. So if you hear, if you're deep listening to yourself and you hear somebody saying, oh, you're so stupid, that's not the voice of your spirit. It might be the voice of incarnated voice of your father or your mother or somebody else, but it's not your spirit. <laughs> um, so it's not judgmental. It's not ever aggressive. So if it says, kill, 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 that's not the voice of your spirit either. It's never aggressive. It is always has an element of surprise. So if you, if you reach to the voice of your spirit, you hear it, it's not saying the same thing you've been telling yourself for six months or six weeks or whatever, over and over, oh, I should, hmm, or, yeah, there's something else. There's, there's always an element of surprise in it. And I would add my, my own criterion, because in my case anyway, it generally has a sense of humor. <laughs> 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 so... When you when you get to that point, then actually listening to, for the voice of your spirit is not so scary. It's not judgmental. It's not violent. It's got something new to tell you, and it's probably going to have a bit of a joke on you, you know. <laughs> it's not so scary, actually, once you get into it. But if you think that you're going to meet up with scary monsters, and, you know, you are a bad person or whatever, and somebody said to me, very, I'm, I'm not going to learn this because... Um, I'm afraid of what I might see or hear. Okay, fair enough. We need to protect ourselves in whatever way, ways we need to for as long as we need to. But really, it's not so scary after all. But it, and that's also the, it's nice because it invokes in me this, the image of alchemy that you've already, you know, mentioned. And there is the transformation of, of the lead to the gold and you can't go back. And it's kind of the same, the same thing. I, I listened to um, John Ravecki and he says, you know, if you're transforming into, you know, for one, this whole this whole image that a lot of people are using about the butterfly, but like when it's in the cocoon, it's it's just sort of the liminal cells. It's just soup, you know. It's just genetic soup, and and ultimately, you don't know if you're going to become a butterfly or a zombie. And and if you're if you become a zombie, you don't know if you're going to like it or not. And but but what's sure is that you're not going to be able to go back. You know, you don't have a do over because you, it's very hard. Um, if not impossible, to unsee what you've seen. If you're gold, you're gold, you know. Um, but it could also be that you've been turned into um, something less pleasant. A wasp <laughs> or a hornet. A hornet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> There's something in that analogy that is very good. I, I wrote about it a very long time ago. Um, I like it. The, and we've used it a lot, the analogy of the, the chrysalis or the butterfly. The... There is a point here that I think was important, and that is that you're at your most vulnerable when you're just emerging from the chrysalis. And so we need all of our empathy and all of our compassion for people who are prepared to undertake this transformation. And it's very literal. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but we once witnessed the birth of a butterfly took several hours before its wings dried off. And we just sat and watched it the whole time, like two hours, I think so. But during that time, it was sitting there on its empty cocoon, and it was totally at the mercy of any predator that had happened to come by because it couldn't yet fly, because its wings were not yet dry. And I think, so this is, uh, an, I think, a very important point for us to remember, to be very, very compassionate with ourselves and with other people who are emerging from cocoons, yeah? To watch over them or ourselves, to set up a support system for ourselves, whatever, because um, we need to take care of ourselves and each other. And then also to returning to something, I don't know if we said it before we started recording or not, but this, this whole idea of, well, it was probably while we were recording, but this, the smallest things can contribute to that care, to that that existential, to, to that survival. It's not necessarily an heroic effort. It, it could be very subtle and have heroic consequences. So it's also that sort of, we seem a little bit stuck on heroism these days. Like there, I see a lot of people packing their bags and going, going down to Ukraine to the border to hand out 
you know, to hand out things. And I, that's, that's wonderful. I, I love the spirit. And at the same time, I wonder if, if that is the most effective they could be um, with that time, you know. And I wonder if they've asked anybody there um, or if they've talked to their friends and, and thought it out um, how to do it. And I mean, I say that with, you know, I, I feel it in myself as well to be, I, I yet, I have yet to decide how I can help in this conflict. I haven't figured it out yet. And I'm sitting with a lot of doubt and uncertainty. <laughs> yet, you say. I really like that. I've been facing the same dilemma since 1956 in the Hungarian Revolution <laughs> uprising. <laughs> I still don't know. <laughs> so I think it's about being present. Being present to what is there and to what is possible and what is needed, asking the question, not trying to answer it, but asking it. I had a request today from a friend in Ukraine to post information that they had uncovered a, a Russian plan to bomb the Cathedral St. Sophia, which is an amazing, amazing place, shrine in the center of Kiev. And of course, I, I, so I reposted it immediately on Facebook and, uh, and then I got thank yous coming in from Ukrainian friends saying, oh, thank you for posting that. You know, it, it can be that tiny, but if it's what they need, then, then, and if I can do it, then, yeah, yeah. And if we, um, but if, if we look forward, from, because you, you were already touching upon this topic of food as one of the the ones that are really stitching us together and and which has you know both incredible impact on on probably both the environmental and the social side i would imagine and the economic um, all of it and yeah, mm. yeah. What, what if if you could sort of give a few recommendations to people <laughs> around how to how to approach this subject of sustainable um movement or if, if you have a desire to actually be in service to the system, to the greater whole, and, and to, if you have an interest in, in people uh, living on, how, how could one, what, 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 is your, what is your best sort of, what are the starting points? What would you recommend? About food, yeah. Point towards. Food is... Just, I mean, food or otherwise, I think, yeah. Well, take food to start with because it's a really good example. I think um, the first thing that any of us can do is to find out where food is produced in our locality close to us and to eat more food from those localities, which means eating more sustainable, more seasonal food. Yeah? And of course, it's very good if it's also organic and all this other stuff and fair trade and stuff. But just start by finding out what is produced locally. There is, for example, a restaurant in Stockholm where I live, which is um, they bought, buy all of their food from local farms. And every day in the restaurant, you can see a, a, um, a blackboard and they write up, you know, the, the beetroots today come from this farm and, and so on and so on. And mostly they, in fact, they are, they are organic. They also go only for organic farms in that particular restaurant. Um, we can all do that to a certain degree. Um, we can all become more conscious about what we're putting inside us and how we are what we eat to a certain extent. And if we eat something, you know, we say sometimes if you're buying processed food or semi-processed food, which of course is incredibly convenient, read the list of ingredients. If you can't pronounce them, don't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can all start somewhere. Everybody can start somewhere. Then the question is in a place like Sweden, which has, is very far north and very cold climate, as you know, Sometimes the local food is much more expensive than the imported food. And maybe you can't afford it. So maybe you set yourself some things. I say, okay, if it's local and organic, I'll buy it as long as it's not more than twice as expensive as the alternative. You know, it's a kind of rule of thumb. And to set yourself um, criteria for what you're going to buy so that you don't have to stop and make a decision about every item in the store. So it, it, it's not difficult to change your eating habits in a more sustainable direction. And it's actually quite stimulating, especially if, like me, you like cooking. I mean, I'm, this is my hobby. <laughs> I'm a chef. <laughs> and I love improvising. So having changing 
different ingredients and things like that is just just fun as far as I'm concerned. But it's not fun for everybody. I understand that. But if you do find it in, uh, interesting, then it's really not difficult. And to reduce food waste to almost nothing and to yeah, eat local, eat seasonal. And if you can, eat organic and fair trade and all that. And I mean, it, it sounds like it's almost a... You could you could generalize those to so what are you supposed to do? Well, do something where you are, you know. And how are you supposed to do it? Well, do what you can, you know. It, it's not, and and then again that uh, spirit of experimentation that you brought in earlier. That you know, I just did the uh, I just did uh, the um, immunity to change course with with Keegan, and I thought it was quite fascinating, just sort of to to end up at assumptions, like to to make visible those assumptions that you carry with you. And then design little experiments for yourself to see if if the world falls down on you when you start uh, acting differently, you know, and, and do it in a very safe way, and then escalate very slowly into into the next step and into the next step. And it's such a nice sort of framework for it. And, and I mean, it's it's there, and it is there is a a listening aspect of that as well because you respect your own feelings around it and and things that might not be necessarily so difficult objectively they might be very difficult for you and that is also okay in a way can you give an example it sounds really really interesting well the 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 framework itself and i'm like of course collapsing this into into something simplistic now but it's like i want to change something okay great and then we list sort of what are the behaviors that i'm doing that is keeping me from changing this thing that i want to change yeah and then I will look at, uh, from there, I will go one step deeper and take a look at sort of um, what are the, <laughs> these behaviors that I'm doing, uh, if I wouldn't be doing them, what am I worried about? So it's like another twist. It's like if I'm actually doing um, this thing, you know, what is it keeping me safe from? Mm. And then from there, I can kind of source my, my, that's what he calls the hidden commitments. And from those hidden commitments, I can take a look at like, what are the assumptions? So maybe whenever I've, I've taken a stand for myself, uh, you know, whenever I've made a choice that, that benefits me, I feel like I've been, uh, you know, somebody's told me off or, or I've, yeah. I've, you know, it could be, it, it ends up being very deep um, in a way. And so very sort of ident identity driven and existential almost. Um, and so, and then these assumptions, like, so what if I would tell my boss that, this thing isn't really the best idea or that I have a better idea, you know, what, what will happen? And my assumption might be that, you know, I would get fired. And then you start somewhere, you talk to a colleague and then you see that, no, you probably wouldn't get fired. Oh, okay. You know, and then you can start moving from there. So it's very neat. Um, but it's really looking at that, those resistances, that immune system, which is sort of the immunity to change, the immune system that we have that is there to keep us safe. Yeah. It's just that it's sometimes... At another context, it might be maladaptive. Mm. Um. Yes, there's one um, another image from psychosynthesis, which is that all of these assumptions or subpersonalities actually are a bit like a pearl in an oyster. They they started because of some friction when we were quite small, and they've become actually something of value that has helped us survive, yeah? And we should never just throw them away. We should always, and then the biggest challenge for me at one point was to learn to, to like my subpersonality. Some of them I really, really disliked when I started discovering them, you know? So there was one that uh, I called her Miss Noel. She wanted to know best. <laughs> she wanted... <laughs> I have her. <laughs> you have one of her. Oh, she's so horrible. I don't want to know about her, you know. <clears throat> and then I realized that she's the one that made me prepare before doing a workshop, for example. And to make sure that I really prepared thoroughly. And the, the only challenge for me was to leave her behind when I stepped into the workshop, said, okay, this, now you've done your bit, you know, now, now it's somebody else to take over. <laughs> yeah. So the value is is there. I really like, I'm also, but I've been peeking at sort of the IFS uh, framework for, for the internal family systems framework for, for those personalities. And then 
I've been listening to a lot of mystic um, podcasts lately, sort of mysticism uh, as a, and then um, I've come across these these different ideas of angels and demons and and entities and uh, the, the the entities that are the systems or entities that are in our in our in the world and so I'm, I'm starting to incorporate them as well as let's say my own subpersonalities right. so that how can I relate to money for instance because it's such a strong presence in our society today that for me it's also been internalized the voice of money the worry around money is also something that I carry with me almost daily you know will I be okay I don't know I don't know you know is it going to give me money is it going to give me you know and then looking at those values and, and seeing how he in my in my head is a he um, interacts with the other personalities that I have mm. and how they value or devalue or threaten those um, identities, right. which is um, constructive. I don't know whether and, it counts as, as mysticism, but there is um, a set of rules for, for good living developed in Palestine a bit more than 2,000 years ago. It's rumored that they were the, the tribe that Jesus went to when he disappeared off the map for a while. Um, and that he studied with them. Uh, they're called the Essenes, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, all that stuff. And one of their rules for right, right living is um, relates to something we talked about earlier, which is relating to people's needs. So there is one, one of the principles, which is called, um, if I remember rightly, abilie in, in Aramaic, which means um, I strive to give you what you need to the extent that it doesn't harm you or me or anybody else. So it's there. And if you, if you look at the extremes, at one extreme is I really don't care whether you get what you need or not. The, the other extremes are I will give you what you need because I know what that is, whether you like it or not. <laughs> but but in, the middle, in the middle is this beautiful concept of I strive to be of service to you, to give you what you need, as long as it doesn't harm you or me or anybody else. Yeah? And there, there are nine of these principles that, um, for, for, for right living that I have found extremely useful. Yeah? Really nice. I will, I will look them up. <laughs> I can send them to you. Yeah. Mm, yes, please. And I mean, if we, if we return to this sort of sustainable living uh, handbook um, is there another are there other general principles that you would like to share in this context yes I think um, make friends make allies find people who talk to people an environmentalist of the better kind not the dogmatic kind once said that we, we have um, we suffer from a conversation deficit we need to talk to each other about things that matter and not to be afraid of doing that. And so in order to do that, we need to have this rather humble approach, you know, to listen, to be willing to listen and not just tell our opinions. So, um, but to, to talk to people about things that matter and to find allies in what you want to do because you can multiply whatever you do by a lot by having a few allies moving out. So that would be the, the really general. So form a team with your neighbors. For example, um, my husband uh, started a, a drive to improve the um, garbage handling in our uh, cooperative housing uh, association. So we're, like, we're 49 apartments, so it's not big, it's small. But, and we've got great facilities in the yard for sorting, but it was a mess. And people were not, especially were not putting their organic waste in the organic waste place. And so he just set up a series of conversations with neighbors. Uh, after a few months, the amount of waste in the organic waste had doubled. The amount of waste in the final waste, which, is, which goes for incineration in our particular community, it's co-generation of electricity and heat, had nearly halved. And recyclables were, were more obviously being recycled. So, and it was through conversations, inviting neighbors, and many of them came, 
to conversations about what we do with our garbage, how we feel about it, why we do this and not something else, or why we don't do that, what's stopping us, you know. So exactly what you were talking about, but in conversation with other people. And it really worked. I mean, the, the conversation, the way that I experienced it as well, is that the other, the other side of the conversation or like the, the part of the conversation um, deficit that, that we forget is that we are, I mean, we're, we're, a lot of us are longing to be heard. I mean, those, there are a few that, that get to shout and, and actually be heard in their shouting, you know, on social media or wherever. Um, however, most of us feel like we are not, not appreciated, not heard, and not, don't matter. And so um, just those extra questions of like, why, why, and how do you feel about it? I mean, so incredibly profound, and yet it feels natural. I mean, just speaking about common sense in a way. <laughs> Yes, I think that's very profound. And I think it's something that we work with <clears throat> in almost all of our projects is how to help ourselves and each other to feel more seen, more heard. Um, and saying that I see you and I hear you doesn't mean necessarily that I agree with you. We so often mistake conversation for argument. Yeah? I don't necessarily agree with everybody I listen to, but I can listen to them and I can try to understand what leads them to that point of view. And then it might be difficult sometimes, you know. <laughs> sometimes it's extra difficult though. <laughs> but most of the time it's, it's easier than we think, you know. And what we saw with the, this, my husband's project with the garbage, uh, a lot of efforts have been made earlier to tell people what to do. You know, you do this and you do that and you do the other and putting up notices and, you know, Lots of angry notices as well. <laughs> and nobody had ever asked people, why, why, you know, what do you, how do you feel about this? The conversations were, they were scheduled for like 90 minutes each in groups of maybe four or five people. And it just turned around because people felt seen and heard and felt qualified to contribute and with many different opinions about <laughs> garbage and food and everything else. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice cycle. We 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 end up kind of back where we started with that theme of empowerment. Yes, and, and the possibility that it holds. Right. Um, if you would want to point people to um, any online resources, any projects you want to uh, advertise or web pages they should visit or, or you know, anything uh, where they could either find you or, or you know, who, whatever project you think they should get in touch with, um, what would you like to point to? Well, it depends a bit. If, if, I mean, obviously, I'd love to be in touch with people who want to talk about this stuff because I love talking about or and listening about this stuff, <laughs> as you notice. <laughs> so that's lovely. Um, and people can always contact me through our website, which I, I think you have the address of, yeah. Um, but more specifically on the website, for example, you'll find uh, under resources, you'll find how to make more sustainable food choices. It's a booklet or it's, a bo it's four little booklets and you can just go through it. It's a workbook. You can do it with your neighbors. You can do it yourself. So it's right there. Then there are all sorts of projects that we're working on at the moment. And if you're a facilitator or a coach, then we have a lot of materials. Um, but ask me and I'll point you to them. Thank you so much for taking the time, Marilyn. I really appreciate it. Me too. Yeah, I'm happy to keep deepening our relationship as well as we get to know each other through the Legacy 17 work and, and whatnot. So more to come, I hope. I look forward to that. I think Legacy 17 is becoming a kind of like a campfire that we gather around to talk. Um, yeah. And that's an important feature of human history, I think. We need to just sit down and talk things over from time to time. So thank you for this particular campfire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, Legacy 17 is, and, and the, a lot of these contexts are interesting because it's those contexts where I'm like, I don't have time and I don't know exactly why I'm part of it. However, when I show up, and I arrive, and I'm there, and I'm both. I both get to be heard and to listen. 
um, something happens mm. and other possibilities open up. And, and then after a while, I also get to know, like my little know-it-all person, he gets to know a little bit more <laughs> and, and it's good. It's good for him too. <laughs> Very nice. So I look forward to whatever happens next. Yeah, me too. Thank you.